Daniel chapter 4, start reading from, from verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. I was lying in bed. The images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded all So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, Cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries, 
The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your Majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your Majesty saw a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field, while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence? By my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honour and splendour were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisers and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. 
and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Right, let me start with a, a, a question. I wonder if you've ever um, been trying to explain something to someone um, and they just don't get it. However hard you try, however many different ways you try and explain it, or even demonstrate it, they still don't get it. Um, maybe like me, you're a, you're a teacher, and that's your job every day. You're explaining to something to someone, and they never get it. Okay, never. It doesn't happen. Okay, or may, maybe you're a parent, and you're trying to teach your children something really important, but they don't understand what you're on about. Maybe it's even in um, a home group setting, and you've got something really insightful to say about a passage, um, but everyone just gets the wrong end of the stick. They just don't get what you're on about. It's really frustrating, isn't it? When you've got something to say, uh, you've got something really important to teach, but who you're, the people you're talking to just don't get it. I imagine that's how uh, Daniel and his friends thought about King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, they have been trying, uh, and God has been uh, speaking to Nebuchadnezzar and saying, you are not king. You're king of Babylon, but you're not the ruler of this world. But he doesn't get it. So in chapter 1, uh, which James Soper took us through uh, about a month ago, he was presented, King Nebuchadnezzar was presented with four men who didn't eat the food that most of the people ate, but they appeared more nourished. He didn't get it. Chapter 2, he had another dream, and uh, his pagan astrologers could not interpret it. But Daniel's God was was, has been shown as the revealer of mysteries. But he still didn't get it. And then chapter 3, Matthew took, that, took us through that last week. This time, Nebuchadnezzar puts himself in the firing line and says, well, what God can save you from my hand to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And yet they come through the fire unharmed. And yet he still doesn't get it. He doesn't understand. There are glimmers of hope, aren't there? In uh, chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar says to Daniel, truly, your God is the God of gods. And in chapter 3, he says, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But notice both of those times, he never owns God as his own. He's always the God of Daniel or the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He doesn't get it. What will it take for Nebuchadnezzar to finally realize that Yahweh is the one true sovereign God? What will it take? We, you, you look at the passages we've looked at already and you think, how doesn't he understand yet? But he hasn't yet, has he? Well, tonight in the passage... But Nebuchadnezzar is finally brought to his knees before the Most High God. And he finally gives him the praise that he is due. If you notice, it's uh, written differently, isn't it? It's not, uh, well, it is narrative, but it's a letter from the king himself to his whole empire, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live on all the earth. It's a letter. And it's Nebuchadnezzar telling his whole empire what God has done for him. Right at the start of the letter, he gives his reason for writing. Uh, verse 2, It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. His whole purpose in this letter is so that everyone would know 
the greatness of the Most High God. To tell the known world about the Most High's eternal kingdom and dominion that it endures from generation to generation. There appears to have finally been a change of heart, a heart change. It is no longer decrees of uh, threats to anyone who speaks badly of the Most High, but it's an exhortation to worship him as Nebuchadnezzar now does. He then goes on to tell the story of how the Most High has humbled him to a point where he now bows willingly to God. So tonight, as we look through Daniel 4, we've got three lessons from Nebuchadnezzar, and then one from each stage of um, the narrative, and then three things that Nebuchadnezzar learns about God, and three things that we can learn as well. So first um, stage of this story is, I've titled it, The Situation That Is Dangerous. Okay? And the lesson we can learn is, do not strive for worldly contentment. Instead, strive for godliness with contentment. So don't strive for worldly contentment. Strive for godliness with contentment. Nebuchadnezzar starts his account uh, of his humiliation and subsequent restoration. Uh, as he does that, he deliberately starts by setting the scene. So verse 4, he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. He was contented and prosperous. He was comfortable and thriving. Part of this scene setting is to make a, a big contrast with the, the, um, the humbling that is soon to come. But it's also there, I think, as a warning to us. Nebuchadnezzar could look around him at the comfort and wealth that he'd built up throughout his reign, at his military victories, uh, and now the peace that he enjoys, uh, and marvel at his own achievements. He was a proud man. His great accomplishments and wealth had made him proud. He was content. His whole life would have been building to this point. Um, we can't be sure, but a lot of commentators seem to think this happened towards the end of his reign. Um, so he's fought all of his battles. He's built up his wealth. He's built Babylon. Uh, he's built the, the hanging gardens, that majestic city. He has all that he wants, and he's finally content. But friends, that is a dangerous position to be in, isn't it? Because when we are content and prosperous, well then, that is the point we often stop trusting in God for all that we need. Now, Nebuchadnezzar never did uh, trust in God up to that point, but there's a lesson for us, isn't there? If we're content, if we're prosperous, if that's what we're striving for, then we'll look at what we have and our accomplishments and think, well, that was me who did that. And we won't trust in God. It's a dangerous position to be in. Even the start of his dream uh, fuels his pride. Look how the tree is described. It's described as large and strong, visible to the ends of the earth, beautiful and abundant. The tree, which he realizes represents himself, is impressive in every way, isn't it? And so is he to look at. You know, we may not have the wealth of Nebuchadnezzar, but the danger is just as real today. Pride is just as big a problem in our day and for us as it was for Nebuchadnezzar. Let me give you an example of uh, what it might look like today. 
Um, have you ever worked hard, I hope you have, uh, maybe to provide for your family, which is a good thing, um, and maybe you can, you've worked hard and you, maybe you can now afford some sort of luxury or something new. Maybe it's a new house or a new car. Maybe even you're offered a promotion. And when you finally get that thing that you really wanted, you sit back and you think, ah, oh, I've earned this. It's really easy to think like that, isn't it? I know from my own experience, I think like that all the time. But that is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here. He's got all that he wants, and he's thinking, I've earned this. This is my doing. He is not giving God the due glory. Instead, we should be saying, thank you, Lord, for giving these good things. Thank you, Lord, for giving these good things. But we say, ah, I've earned it. You know, some things we strive for in life are not wrong in themselves, are they? House, uh, a good job, promotion, it's not wrong in themselves. But the problem comes when they become the foundation for our contentment, the foundation that we build our life on. And they are an unsteady foundation, as we see here. The contrast between verses 4 and verse 5 is stark, isn't it? He goes from being contented and prosperous, in verse 4, to afraid and terrified, in verse 5, in the space of a night. Contented and prosperous one day, afraid and terrified the next. Why? Well, it's all because what he's been striving for is now, being, is now under threat. It's now going to be taken away. And he doesn't know where to go. Instead of striving for godliness, uh, instead of striving for uh, worldly contentment, strive for godliness with contentment. What's the difference? Well, Matthew, um, yet if you were here yesterday, Matthew took us um, through our, the culture's view of identity. And it's a similar kind of thing, I think. Um, Matthew said our culture's view of identity depends on appearance, preference, and performance. And you could say the same about our culture's view of what, how to be content is. Get the appearance how you want. Go, to, go with your preferences. Outperform. How, what, perform on whatever you do. Your job, your sporting career, whatever it is. But as Matthew pointed out yesterday, those things are fragile, aren't they? Let's be content instead in the Lord. You see, when our contentment is, rests on the shaky foundations of worldly pleasures, then as situations change, we will crumble as, as Nebuchadnezzar did. But if our contentment rests on the sure foundation of the Most High, then no circumstance can change that, because God is unchanging. Instead of striving for worldly contentment, contentment in things and position, Let's strive for godliness with contentment. So that's the first uh, point, the, the situation that's dangerous. Let's strive for godliness with contentment. But secondly, the second uh, section, we've got a sermon that is uh, direct, verses 19 through to 27. And the lesson here is, do not harden your heart to the challenge of God's word. Instead, be ready to be changed by it. Have you ever been sat in church, maybe in, in this very building, in the chair you've been sat in, or at North Leamington, uh, or at a different church altogether, and you've been listening to a sermon and thought, 
wow, I've, I really feel that the preacher is speaking directly to me. I know I have. Um, what they're saying is so relevant to your situation and so engaging that you think, well, if it was just me and the preacher in a room, then what he's saying would not feel out of place at all. And then maybe as the preacher is scanning the room, he fixes his eyes on you for a time. And you think, Phew, that's hard-hitting. And it can feel like for ages sometimes. But it's powerful, isn't it? When a sermon is so relevant to you and so direct with God's help, it can have a massive impact on a life, can't it? I don't know about you, but I can think back to sermons years ago, which I remember every detail of, because it was that relevant and that direct. Other sermons I can't remember from a week, a week ago. Okay? But some sermons are so direct and powerful that they make a massive impact with God's help. And that's what we have here. Except this time, instead of uh, Daniel preaching to a whole congregation, really, he's preaching to one man, Nebuchadnezzar. He never takes his eyes off him. Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has um, brought all the wise men of Babylon uh, in front of him to interpret this dream. And once again, um, the pagan astrologers could do nothing. Daniel is the last wise man on the scene. After all of the others are unable to explain the dream, Daniel comes. And as the king explains the dream, uh, tells the dream to Daniel, he becomes very uneasy uh, and deeply troubled. He's so deeply troubled by the meaning that um, he becomes speechless for a time. It says, Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. Daniel had true compassion for the king, didn't he? The meaning of this dream troubled him, not because it was bad about Daniel, but because the meaning of it was bad for the king. He did not want to deliver the message that God had for him. He was reluctant to do it because he knew that it was bad news for King Nebuchadnezzar. Instead, he wished it was for the king's enemies instead. Daniel's message was not an easy one to deliver at all. He takes no delight in it. And sometimes we as Christians have to be the bearers of a very hard message. The message that there is a God in heaven who demands holiness and a holiness that we can never achieve. And because we fall short of that standard, we deserve to be divinely judged. That is not an easy message to deliver to anyone, is it? But it's the message of, from God. But Daniel's genuine compassion here is a great example, isn't it? I don't know um, about you, but sometimes we can deliver the message of judgment coldly. But Daniel doesn't. He does it with compassion. And I'm sure that that gives him the opportunity to be clear and direct with the king later on. He gives a great challenge at the end of his sermon. We'll come to that in a minute. But I think it's his compassion at the start that gives him that, that opportunity at the end. So he has great compassion. But despite being uneasy about the message, Daniel continues and gives the king the interpretation. But look how direct he is. He doesn't beat around the bush, does he? he? He gets straight to the point. Verse 22. Your majesty, you are that tree. It has echoes of the prophet Nathan with David, doesn't it? When After David sinned with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah, Nathan said in 2 Samuel 12, 7 to David, you are the man. 
And in that breath, he revealed to David his sin, and David is broken. Nebuchadnezzar has it confirmed what he knew all along, that the dream is about him. But Daniel continues. He doesn't hold back, does he? He reminds him time and again that the meaning of this dream is one of judgment on not the people of Babylon, but on Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 25 particularly drives it home. Have a look at verse 25 with me. It says, You will be driven away from the people, from people, and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. He's direct, isn't he? There's no hiding from the fact that this dream is about Daniel. He could not be clearer. Judgment from God was coming to Nebuchadnezzar. One of my favorite films, uh, and one we watch most Christmases, well, every Christmas, is uh, The Muppets Christmas Carol. Uh, And I'm sure it's the same in the original, in the book, um, but I don't know that one so well, so I'm going to go with The Muppets. Um, And if you don't know the story, Ebenezer Scrooge is um, a harsh man, he's the main character, a harsh man who's made himself rich by capitalizing on the poor. Okay, so he's, he's brought the poor low to make himself rich. And one Christmas Eve, he's visited by three um, spirits. Um, the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Uh, and as Scrooge is with the last spirit, the ghost of Christmas yet to come, he is brought to a graveyard right at the end. Scrooge's torrid night is nearly finished, but there is one more thing he needs to see. The spirit points to a gravestone. And Scrooge knows full well whose name is going to be written on that stone. But he does everything he can to avoid the truth. He makes out that he's going to another gravestone. But unmoved, the spirit keeps pointing at this one gravestone. And as Scrooge wipes away the snow from the stone, he reveals the name that he knew would be there. Ebenezer Scrooge. I'd imagine Nebuchadnezzar had the same feeling. He knew what the dream meant, but needed someone to finally tell him for sure. Judgment was coming to him. Nebuchadnezzar had to take the consequence for his consequences for his sin. And ladies and gentlemen, it is the same for you and for me. Many of you have sat in this church many times. You've heard God's word preached many, many times. And you know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know that. And yet, like Scrooge, you are trying to avoid the truth that that includes you. Friends, may I plead with you that if that is you this evening, that you would wipe away the snow from the gravestone, as it were, and see that your name is in that list too. You are one of the all have sinned. Do not keep trying to avoid the truth of God's word. Do not keep hardening your heart to it. For those who were with us yesterday, Andy McIntosh was saying that the church has lost its sight, lost sight of judgment. Well, here it is. We are all deserving of God's judgment, aren't we? And it is a fearful thing, this, Andy quoted this yesterday, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that's each one of us. 
And do you know, are you aware that that is you as well? But the wonderful thing is, Daniel's sermon doesn't end there. He goes on to offer a possible way out for Nebuchadnezzar. He carries on being direct, um, but this time tells Nebuchadnezzar how he should respond. Look at verse uh, 27. He says to Nebuchadnezzar, "Uh, Be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right, and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. Daniel says to the king, You must repent and plead forgiveness from the Most High. Friends, have you truly repented of your sin and sought forgiveness that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ? Because although we deserve judgment, it is Christ, God's Son, who takes it. He drank every last drop of the cup of God's wrath so that we can go free. Friends, the question is, you've heard that sermon many times. Have you ever responded to it? Nebuchadnezzar didn't at this point, but have you? So there it is, the sermon that is direct. Do not, be, do not harden your heart to the challenge of God's word. Third section then is the sin that is not dealt with, verses 28 to 33. And the lesson here is, do not leave sin unrepented. And it follows on very closely from where I've just, set, uh, just finished. Instead, keep short accounts with the Lord. Do not leave sin unrepented. Instead, keep short accounts with the Lord. Daniel has just delivered one of the most direct sermons you could hear. And the king was probably one of the only, well, he would have been one of the only ones who would have heard it, maybe the only one. So there is no way he could have said, oh, that was meant for somebody else. And yet, as Nebuchadnezzar left the church hall and went to go and grab his cup of tea from the hatch, he completely forgets what he's just been told, what he's just heard. And even if Nebuchadnezzar at that time was made to feel uncomfortable and felt in need of change, no heart change was seen. Because 12 months later, he is still as proud as ever. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as as the royal residence, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? God has been patient with him, hasn't he? He's given him a whole year to repent and change. And yet, the longer he goes on, the more proud Nebuchadnezzar becomes. The sin confronted in the interpretation of the dream has not been dealt with. And I don't know, maybe it was because Nebuchadnezzar didn't see the judgment come immediately. And so he thought, well, maybe it was just a dream and Daniel's made up the interpretation. Maybe he just brushed it off because he didn't see the judgment immediately. And yet 12 months later, we're back to where we started, in Nebuchadnezzar's palace, but this time on the roof. And as he surveys the scene he sees, he proclaims, aren't I great again? (coughs) There has been no heart change at all. He is still attributing everything good to himself. He still has no room for the Most High God. Everything is for the glory of his majesty. But after this latest outburst of pride, God finally brings judgment on him. It says, even as the words were on his lips, 
the judgment comes. And it is delivered in an instant. It is now too late for Nebuchadnezzar to repent of his sin and avoid this terrible judgment. He had a chance. He's lost it for now. Suddenly he becomes mad. He became like the animals of the field. Some say um, the condition is called boanthropy, uh, where the patient just believes he's, he or she is a cow or some other beast of the field and acts like it. And, and the condition is rare, but it's still around today. But whether or not that is what uh, Nebuchadnezzar was afflicted with, that's not the point. The thing that we need to see is that God's judgment is sudden and serious. Is sudden and serious. It was delivered in an instant. Nebuchadnezzar lived with unrepented sin and it resulted in God's judgment. Friends, can I ask you, when was the last time that you got on your knees and said sorry for the sins of that day and pleaded for forgiveness? And I'm speaking here to myself as well, but it should be a daily habit. As we go to bed, we should be thinking about the day that's just passed and being sorry for the sins that we've committed. And for those of you who, again, have never repented of your sin and put your trust in the Lord Jesus, how long will you wait? Will you wait a day, a month, a year like Nebuchadnezzar? Friends, don't even wait another hour. God is patient with us, but one day it will be too late to do anything. Another um, passage that was quoted yesterday was 2 Peter chapter 3. Let me read a couple of verses from there, verses 9 and 10. The Lord is not slow, talking about the day of the Lord when Jesus will return. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God is patient. He wants us to come to repentance. But then it says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it, done in it will be laid bare. The Lord is patient. But we don't know when Christ will come or when we will be taken. It will happen in an instant. And at that point it will be too late. Friends, don't leave it another day. Don't leave it another hour. Why not pray now and confess your sin to the Most High and ask him to forgive you through the Lord Jesus? He promises that he will. Don't leave sin unrepented. Wonderfully, though, for Nebuchadnezzar, he was given another chance. Um, and our last uh, section is uh, I've called The Salvation That Is Delivered, verses 34 to 37. And the lesson, there's a few lessons here, but the main lesson is God is worthy of all praise because he alone can save. God is worthy of all praise because he alone can save. The chapter ends in the same way it started. Nebuchadnezzar praising God for his wonderful works in his life. Nebuchadnezzar did finally raise his eyes toward heaven. His sanity was restored and he did what all truly sane people do and he praised the Most High God. The biggest miracle in this chapter is not the interpretation of the dream, although that is amazing in itself. It's not the way that Nebuchadnezzar was suddenly made mad or suddenly restored again. Again, amazing in itself. No, the biggest miracle in this chapter is that the proud Nebuchadnezzar finally 
has willingly bowed the knee in worship of God, whose dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the people of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar finally has learnt the lesson. He's learnt that God is sovereign over all and he's bowed and worshipped. And just as a a quick aside, isn't it encouraging uh, to think of the witness of Daniel and his friends to Nebuchadnezzar? Years they've been telling him about the Most High God. And finally, he understands. Nebuchadnezzar realized that Daniel was different. It said um, earlier um, that he knew that the spirit of the holy gods was in him. Okay, now he may not have understand it fully, understood fully, but he knew he was different, and that gave Daniel the opportunity. But Nebuchadnezzar was miraculously saved. And as we close, three things that Nebuchadnezzar and we can learn about the Most High God. The first one, and this is the main message of the dream, is that the Most High is sovereign over all and worthy of our utmost praise. It comes out three times, verses 17, verse 25, and verse 32. The main message of the dream is repeated three times in every telling of it. And it was, at this, it was this point that Nebuchadnezzar did not understand until he finally raised his eyes towards heaven. Let's have a look at verse 17, the first time it said, the whole purpose of the humbling. Uh, It says, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. It's repeated in verse 25 and 32 as well. God's message was that Nebuchadnezzar was not the ruler of the world, as he liked to think of himself. God's message that it was that he is the one who is sovereign. He is the one who sets up kings and brings down kingdoms. Even in Daniel's interpretation of the dream, he gives a hint to say that Nebuchadnezzar, he says that Nebuchadnezzar's dominion extends only to distant parts of the, um, parts of the earth. I've lost where it is now. Uh, verse 22, extends to distant parts of the earth, not the whole earth. Nebuchadnezzar is not the ruler of the whole earth. God is. And God has set up Nebuchadnezzar. Compare this with God's kingdom that is eternal and endures forever. Again, it's echoing that that message that he should have learned in chapter 2. That Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar's reign will one day fall. God's kingdom, well, nothing comes after God's kingdom. That's the one that endures. God is sovereign over kingdoms. He was sovereign then and he is sovereign now. And I hope that is an encouragement to you today. As we see the political turmoil in the world, let's remember that God is sovereign. It is the Most High who is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. There is not a kingdom that is not under God's control. There is not a ruler who cannot be dethroned overnight if God wills it. Isn't that an encouragement to those who are suffering in Ukraine? And even here, we may not understand why these things happen, but God is in control, and that should drive us to praise him. 
He's sovereign over rulers, but he's also sovereign in our own lives as well, isn't he? Over the little things. He knows. He cares. And he's in control. So the main message, the Most High, God himself, is sovereign over all and worthy of utmost praise. But Nebuchadnezzar also learnt that the Most High provides us with all that we have. From the smallest thing, his sanity, to the greatest, his splendor. God could have just stripped Nebuchadnezzar of all his wealth and prosperity. And that might have been punishment enough for him. But Nebuchadnezzar had to learn something else. God provides us with every good thing, including our sanity. The fact that the madness came on Nebuchadnezzar so suddenly must have shown him that God was even in control of how his mind works. I love the fact that there's very little detail about how Nebuchadnezzar was driven from his kingdom and then restored. It just says that he was. It just happened. Why aren't we given the detail? Well, maybe it's because it's maybe so that we're not even tempted to think that it was people who forced him out and people who restored him. Instead, we're forced to acknowledge that it was God who took all away from him and, all, and God who restored everything back to him. And as Nebuchadnezzar is restored, what is the first thing that comes back? Well, it's his sanity. Something that for the whole of his life, he would have taken for granted. God reminds him that every good, good and perfect gift is from above. Nebuchadnezzar's response to his sanity being restored was to honor and glorify the Most High. And that should be the same for us as well. How often do we thank God for those small things that he so readily provides for us? We do it at the meal table, don't we? But when else do we do it? He provides us with the small things, the good things. But he also goes on to bless Nebuchadnezzar even more greatly. Not only does he get his right mind back, but he too gets his riches and his kingdom back and is far richer and far greater than he was before. But this time he is able to praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven rather than what he did before when he praised and exalted and glorified the king of Babylon. He now does it to the king of heaven. So Nebuchadnezzar learnt that God provides us with all that we need, everything good. And the last thing Nebuchadnezzar learns, and he says it right at the end, is the Most High humbles those who do not bow the knee. Verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. He finishes his account with the recognition that God humbles the proud, as happened to him. And whether or not the proud are humbled on earth, there will be a day when every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. One day, everyone will bow, whether willingly or forced. They will bow and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. This Jesus, the one who was not proud and did not need to be humbled by God, but was willing that even though he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing 
by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He's the one who humbled himself so that we could bow to him. He is the one who is worthy of our praise.